Jesus didn't come to be served. His mission was to serve. And he did that by healing and helping people and doing good, as the Gospels tell us. But most profoundly, he did it, as he says here, by giving his life as a ransom for many. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part four of The One and Others. Tom will continue to examine the biblical truth about loving one another and how you are meant to show love to other believers. As you'll discover today, the primary way that God intends for you to serve others is through the spiritual giftedness that He has given you. But are you active in a ministry of a church? Are you using the spiritual giftedness God has given you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you just too busy engaged in something else? Examine your priorities as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So each of us, there's a sense in which each of us is a stone in this temple, if you will, in which our God specially manifests His presence. But we're not merely a stone. We're also to be builders. We're to assist in the building. This becomes clear in the commands that are throughout the New Testament. Here's one example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul, in the context, has just told the people in Thessalonica that someday we will live together with Christ. And he says, therefore, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Build up one another. You see, all of us are to have the mindset of builders. We cannot... We must not destroy other stones or other believers by our words or by our actions. In fact, God takes very seriously when we enter his house, the church, and take out our sledgehammer and, as it were, begin to damage the other stones. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says this, You, Corinthians, are a temple. Your church in Corinth constitutes a temple. And listen to what he says. If any man destroys that temple, God will destroy him. So we're not to tear down other stones. We're not to damage other stones by our actions. Instead, we are to build up one another. Now, as you go through Paul's writings, you see this recurring again and again. If you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for example, and he begins a section in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, dealing with... Christian liberty, and specifically dealing with issues of conscience. Now, I'm going to touch on that several times, so let me just clarify and make sure you understand. Scripture very clearly commands certain things, and Scripture very clearly forbids other things. But there are a number of things in our lives about which we have to make decisions that aren't dealt with in a clear chapter and verse in Scripture. Those decisions we need to make, those categories, are called issues of conscience, are places where we can exercise our Christian liberty. Whether you're talking music or dress or 
There are a whole number of issues that fall into this area of issues of conscience. And Paul and the Holy Spirit tell us exactly how it is we should address these things that aren't directly either forbidden or demanded in Scripture. And he does so in Romans chapter 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. As Paul introduces this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 on issues of conscience, listen to what he writes in verse 1. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now here he's picking out a contemporary example of an issue of conscience. It was, is it okay for a Christian to buy the meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god? You could go and out the back door of the pagan temple, you could buy a pretty good cut of meat really cheap because somebody had already had to pay for that to have it sacrificed. So they could offer you a great discount. A lot of Christians went, as we all like discounts, they went and they enjoyed the meat. Other Christians said, how can you do that? That's been sacrificed to idols. And so there was this disagreement. This was an issue that wasn't clearly addressed in the Scripture. And so Paul lays down principles, and the principles he lays down apply not only to the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, but all of the issues of conscience that we have to address as well. As he begins that, 1 Corinthians 8.1, Now concerning those things, he says, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That Greek word for edifies is the same word for building. To edify is simply to build up. It literally means to build a structure. And here, listen carefully. This comes to the heart of it. What does it mean to build up? When this word, to edify, is used figuratively, as it is here, and as it is in these other contexts we're looking, it always refers to to promoting another Christian's spiritual growth and health. To build up another person is to promote their spiritual growth and health. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at the end of the section on Christian liberty. Verse 23, he says, All things are lawful. All of these things that haven't been clearly forbidden by Scripture, they're lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things, what? edify or build up. So even as you think about your Christian liberty, you are to consider what will build others up, what will promote other Christians' spiritual growth and development. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 14 where he deals with this same issue of Christian liberty. In Romans 14 verse 19, he says, So then let us pursue the things which make for the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God, for the sake of these issues of conscience, he says. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 1, he tells us that those who are strong, that is, who think it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, those who think it's a problem, and not just please ourselves. Each of us, 15.2, is to please his neighbor for his good to his, or with the goal of, his edification, his being built up his spiritual growth and development. This concept occurs in other contexts as well. For example, what about when the church meets for worship? This is to be a preoccupation. Not only are we primarily to meet for worship, but we're also to meet to build one another up, and we're to do those things which will encourage and promote spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as Paul deals with the problem in Corinth of tongues, the abuse of it. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, 
but especially the gift of prophecy. Now, in this context, prophecy is nothing more than the capacity to speak publicly the Word of God, to speak forth or to proclaim the Word of God. And he says, you need to seek that gift. Why? Verse 3, because the one who prophesies speaks to men for building up. Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what will build up the church, what will edify the church. Verse 26, and he says, listen, when you get together, there's all this confusion. You're all doing your own thing. The end of verse 26, let all things in the corporate worship be done for what builds up, what edifies. So whether you're talking about Christian liberty or when we come together as a church or even our daily communication, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul says, don't let any corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for what? Edification, building up others. We are to speak in such a way as to build others up, to promote their spiritual growth. So folks, get the picture. The church is a building, a temple of God, and Christ is building this temple, and he's shaping and honing every one of us, every stone, so that we fit perfectly together. And you and I are to assist in the building by promoting the spiritual growth of the believers around us. Now let me just ask you a pointed question. Can the people that live in your home honestly say that you promote, by your example, by your words, their spiritual growth and development? Can the people who know you in this church honestly say before the Lord that you are building them up, that you are promoting their spiritual growth and health? How can you do it? How can you build others up? How can you promote the spiritual growth of other Christians? If you're a Christian, your occupation is to promote the spiritual growth of other Christians. You know, I think it's fascinating that the Holy Spirit chose this image to picture the church because in the ancient world, temples required a great amount of time to build. Take Herod's temple, for example. It took 84 years to build Herod's temple. In fact, they completed it just six years before 70 AD when it was all destroyed. Several visits to England. I've had the opportunity, as some of you have had, to visit Canterbury Cathedral. That magnificent building. To complete that amazing structure as it stands today took over a thousand years. And you know, I really think the Holy Spirit chose this image of a temple for this very reason. Because it describes the faithful, painstaking, patient work that we are to invest in each other's lives. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither is the church. And neither is every individual stone shaped and fitted for his or her place in the church of God in a day. It takes time and patience. But we are to be engaged in that process. So we are to be builders. We're to build one another up. Our second occupation is to be servants. Not only are we to build one another up, but we are to serve one another. There's so many places where we're commanded to do this. One example is Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. There in the context, Paul is saying, 
listen, you are free now from the law as a way of trying to achieve a righteousness of your own, a salvation of your own. He said, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity to pursue the satisfaction of your flesh. Instead, he says, through love, serve one another. This word serve is a common New Testament word. It originally meant to wait on tables. In fact, it's used in this sense in a number of places in the New Testament. For example, in Mark one thirty-one, you remember Peter's mother-in-law, after she was healed, gets up and serves them food. It's used this way of Martha in Luke 10.40 and her serving Jesus and the disciples' food. In John chapter 2, it's used of the servants who are serving at the wedding there in Cana. In John chapter 12, verse 2, it's used again of Martha serving Jesus. In Acts 6, verse 2, it's used of the seven, you remember, who were going to serve the Greek widows food every day. It means to wait tables. That's what it means. It later came to refer to any menial service of any kind to someone else. The Greeks, by the way, held those who fill such roles in very low esteem. They believed that ruling, not serving, was the appropriate role for man. In fact, one Greek writer says this, How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone else? That's pretty much the perspective of our day as well, isn't it? And yet it's not God's perspective. Think for a moment about the teaching and example of Christ. If you think it's beneath you to be a servant to other Christians, then listen to what Christ said about this and carefully consider his own example. Turn to Matthew chapter 20, where I think we see our Lord's teaching on this in brilliant clarity. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew gives us the circumstance The mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. The synoptic gospels tell us that all three of them came with this request privately. Matthew here records the one from the mother of James and John. I can't imagine these boys weren't embarrassed after all this happened. I hope they were. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? They said, we are able. And he said, my cup you shall drink. In other words, he was telling them that they would suffer and eventually die for his namesake. James was beheaded and John was tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos where he died. He says, it's true, you're going to drink of this cup, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those who it's been prepared by my father. And hearing this, and you knew this was going to happen, the ten, the other guys, became indignant with the two brothers. Of course, they all had been arguing about who was the greatest, so don't feel like they have the moral high ground here. But Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. Verse 25, he calls them to himself and said, Let me tell you, you understand that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. He says, listen, You understand that greatness is defined in our world by power and authority. It's still the same in ours. Verse 26, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your deacon. That's what it says. Your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your doulos, your slave. And then he uses himself as an example. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. You ever thought about that? Jesus didn't come to be served. Oh, there were times when individual Christians served him. But that wasn't the purpose and intent of his mission. His mission was to serve. And he did that by healing and helping people and doing good, as the Gospels tell us. But most profoundly, he did it, as he says here, by giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a perfect example of how we're to serve. If Jesus came to serve, to wait tables, then that's what we ought to do as well. But what exactly does this service look like for us? That's how it looked like for Jesus. What does it look like for us? How can we actually practice this command to serve this week? Well, there are two primary ways in the New Testament service demonstrates itself. Number one, caring for the physical needs of others. Caring for the physical needs of others, very practically. It can mean giving to meet those needs. For example, in Acts 11.29, it's used that way. It's translated relief there. It's used the same way to describe financial support in 1 Corinthians 8.4 and in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Caring for the needs of others goes beyond giving. Sometimes the easiest thing in the world is to give some money, isn't it? But actually serving often requires much more active involvement, energy, and time. Let me show you what real service looks like on this practical level. Turn to Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, verse 31... We encounter a judgment, often called the judgment of the nations. This is not the, probably the great white throne of judgment. Rather, it is the judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation period of those who have survived the tribulation. It's called a judgment of the nations, but that's really not exactly accurate. It's a judgment of individuals. And notice, as they're there, verse 34 says, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What I want you to see here is that they're entering the kingdom because of grace. God chose them, as we've talked about in divine election, before the foundation of the world, and they're entering in because of that gracious, sovereign choice. But their works demonstrate the reality of their faith. The works that are listed here are not the root of their salvation, but the fruit of it. Notice what he says, verse 35, Jesus now speaking to these people, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous are going to say, Lord, when did that happen? Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he'll also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he says the opposite is true with them. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And so on. Verse 44, they're going to respond, wait a minute, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And watch this, did not take care of you. You see, did not take care of you, that's our word for serve. 
when did we not serve you? When did we not wait on you? What you have here, folks, is a definition of service. It's clothing those who have no clothes. It's inviting strangers in. It's visiting those in hardship and prison and hospitals. It's very, very practical. J.I. Packer writes, the essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king expressing itself in care for his servants. Let me ask you, when was the last time you actively cared for someone in need in the church? When's the last time you made a hospital visit? When's the last time you attended the funeral of a family that you know that's going through hardship and trouble? When's the last time you visited someone who's physically unable to come to church because of their age or, or health? When's the last time you took a meal to someone who was unable because of surgery or other circumstances to prepare their own? When did you offer to cut the grass of someone who was physically unable to watch their house and pick up the paper when they had to leave because of a family emergency to keep the kids so that a young couple that couldn't otherwise afford to would have a little time with each other? I want you to think right now about someone you know who is going through difficult trials, who's, who's in need as we speak, and I want you to determine how you can serve them very practically this week. That's what this word service means. And it's an obligation. So we can actually practice this command by caring for the physical needs of others. But there's a second way we can practice service. And it's we can serve by using our spiritual giftedness in the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lays down for the Ephesians, how the church is to function. And he says in verse 11 that Christ gave gifted men to the church, and he did it, verse 12, so that these gifted men would equip the saints, that's you, for the work of, here it is, service. Your whole role in the church is to serve. My job and the elder's job is to equip you to serve. And how do you serve? Well, Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, as each one of you has received a special spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another. Listen, folks, the primary way God intends for you to serve others is through the spiritual giftedness that he has given to you. Are you active in a ministry of this church? Are you using the spiritual giftedness God has given you? Are you too busy, engaged in something else? How can you serve other Christians? Care for their earthly, physical needs and serve them in the church by using your giftedness. When we serve others in these ways, the writer of Hebrews says, God is not unjust to forget that you have served and are still serving saints. That means blessing here, doesn't it? But it also means reward at the judgment. But there's something else I want you to see about service. This is an amazing, amazing reality. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus is telling us to be ready for his coming. Verse 37 says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Now watch what he says next. Truly I say to you that he, that is the master, Jesus Christ, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them. Folks, here's the amazing thing. Today, here, we serve one another. But there's coming a time when our Lord Jesus Christ will serve us.
Our service here could never earn that. It's all grace. Just like he served us in the incarnation. You remember the verse we looked at just a few minutes ago? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But we not only can look back and see his service to us by becoming a ransom for many, but we can look ahead and see that when he comes, amazing grace of amazing grace, he will gird himself and serve us and wait on us. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of The One Another's. Tom will continue with part five on our next program. Join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.